You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Ephesians chapter 4. We read beginning at verse 1, we'll read to verse 10. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that He might fill all things. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come into this place tonight with hearts that are thankful. Thankful, Lord, that we belong to you. Thankful that we're alive together with your Son. Thankful, Lord, that our salvation is not explained by us, nor is it maintained by us. But Lord, you have taken hold of us and you will never let us go. Thankful that we have brothers and sisters who share in all these things with us, thankful for your church, thankful for your word, that we're not wandering around trying to figure things out on our own, but Lord, you have revealed to us the things that are sufficient for life and godliness, these things we have in your Son and in your word. Thankful for the privilege to declare the things you've given to us and for us together to study the things you've given to us in Scripture. Thankful that we have a resonant truth teacher. Your Spirit, who's at work in our minds and hearts, even as the Word goes forth tonight, helping us to grasp the things that You've revealed. We are grateful. And we ask that, Lord, tonight You would glorify Your great name in the midst of Your people. As we think about Your Word tonight together, Lord, You would be front and center in our minds and hearts. And that we would glory in You in and through our Savior, the Lord Jesus, by Your Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue tonight thinking about the unity of the local church. That's why we're in Ephesians 4. As you remember, we have taken a break on Sunday evenings from our study of Matthew, given the way that the Lord has grown this church, given the fact we have so many new people, and aware, not ignorant of, the schemes of our enemy, 
in a way that is preparatory, in a way that's preemptive. We want to think about what it takes to maintain the unity that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so we've been walking through this section that that is the subject matter, the unity of God's people. And when we came to the seventh verse, we saw that there's a bit of a contrast, even though the subject matter is the same, there's a bit of a contrast introduced by the word but, verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And as we'll talk about in a moment, what that contrast indicates is, is that our, our unity is not uniformity. Though we are truly one in Jesus Christ, though we know a, a real unity that is found in salvation, it is a unity that we experience together with diversity. And the diversity is in many different realms, but certainly belongs to the spiritual gifts that have been distributed among God's people for the purpose of service. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Now we come tonight to verses 8 through 10. Having seen the distribution of spiritual gifts to God's people, now in verses 8 through 10 we see the explanation for these gifts. That's what Paul is doing. He's explaining to us how this came to be. That we have these graces called spiritual gifts, divinely granted enablements for ministry. We have gifts that we've received individually, but then there are also gifted men whom the Lord has given to His church. You see that down in verse 11. And He Himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists. He's not talking about giving offices to the church. He's talking about giving the men who have served in these offices. How do you explain this life that we share in together in which we experience these gracious gifts from the hand of Jesus. That's what he's going to be explaining to us in verses 8 through 10. Now, I want to say as we begin that these are three verses that are not hard to understand in terms of their meaning in Ephesians 4. What Paul says in verses 8 through 10 is plain. It is not difficult really to grasp. But what is difficult to grasp and has tortured many a commentator is how he is making use of Psalm 68 verse 18. Verse 8, therefore it says, well, where does it say this? Psalm 68 verse 18, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And Paul is associating that verse with what he wants to teach us about spiritual gifts. And the question is, in what way does that verse from Psalm 68 function when we think about Jesus, when we think about the church? What makes this a bit difficult is that not only do we wonder about Psalm 68, 18 in its original context, and how it would apply to Christ's ascension and the giving of gifts, but Paul has also changed the words. Psalm 68 verse 18 says this, listen carefully, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Now if you look at Ephesians 4, 8, you see two changes. Paul has changed from 
the second person personal pronoun to the third person. Psalm 68, you ascended. In your train, these captives were led forth. Ephesians 4.8, therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives. Now that's not the most difficult one to deal with because you could easily see that what Paul would be saying perhaps is the you of Psalm 68.18 look forward to Jesus. But he also changes something else. Because in Psalm 68.18, you have the one being spoken of receiving gifts among men. But in Ephesians 4.8, it says, He gave gifts to men. Psalm 68, the one spoken of receives gifts. Ephesians 4.8, the one spoken of gives gifts. So what is Paul doing? with Psalm 68, verse 18. As I said, this is troubled, challenged, many a commentator. Obviously, let me just give us some comfort at the beginning. Obviously what he does, he does under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So even if we're not able to fully grasp what is going on in the mind of Paul, we have the fruit of his mind in Ephesians 4.8, and the fruit is the Word of God. So the most important thing is that we understand Ephesians 4.8 in this context. That's what's most important. Not that we can fully discern everything going on in Paul's mind and his logic as he makes application of this verse. That's not the most important thing. But is there an explanation for what he's doing with this Old Testament verse? Various uh, approaches have been taken. Various explanations have been offered. I don't want to bore you tonight with a myriad of scholarly opinions or competing commentators. So I'm not going to go deeply into it. Let me just mention it. Some have tried to explain what Paul was doing as the practice of an ancient Jewish hermeneutical approach. Midrash, Pesher. Midrash, roughly equivalent to our word exegesis. Pesher referring to a practice that you see sometimes where rabbis would take what they saw as the fulfillment of prophecy and then integrate it into the verse that, that, that previously predicted the prophecy. So you take the fulfillment and you integrate it back into the verse itself. So is that what Paul is doing here, taking Jesus as the fulfillment of what he sees as messianic prophecy from Psalm 68 and then, and then reading the details of, G, of what Jesus has done, integrating it right into Psalm 68 verse 18? Is this an ancient Jewish hermeneutical practice or interpretive practice? Others have wondered if perhaps what Paul is doing is actually quoting from a textual variant that existed in a textual tradition other than the Masoretic text or the Septuagint. There are some ancient texts where Psalm 68, 18 reads that he gave gifts to men. Peter O'Brien summarizes some of these views. Listen to what he had to say. He said, A much more serious attempt to solve the dilemma takes its starting point from a variant form of the Old Testament textual tradition. The Syriac Peshitta rendering of Psalm 68.18 is, You have given gifts. And although there's a difference of scholarly opinion as to its value as evidence, it may reflect a textual tradition different from that represented by the Masoretic text or the Septuagint, 
Furthermore, the paraphrase of Psalm 68.18 in the Aramaic Targum is remarkable. But like the Peshitta, it reads, you gave rather than you received, as in the Masoretic text. It is unlikely that the New Testament wording of the passage has influenced the Targum. And although the Targum on the Psalms is late, it reflects a tradition and text form that are much earlier. M. Wilcox has cautiously concluded that the author of Ephesians was here quoting either from or in the light of an Old Testament textual tradition resembling that of the Targum, but disagreeing with the tradition preserved in the Septuagint and the Masoretic text at this point. Accordingly, it has been claimed that Paul has taken over the textual tradition as reflected in the Targum you gave and employed a common technique of early Jewish hermeneutics known as Midrash Pesher, in which his exposition of the text in the light of its fulfillment in Christ is integrated into the actual quotation. So this is the sort of thing that scholars muse over to try to figure out what's going on in the verse. Others have offered suggestions that would involve a historical grammatical approach to interpretation. Charles Smith, in a journal article in 1975, believed that what was going on in Psalm 68 was an example of intertextuality, that, that the psalmist, David, was actually picking up on something from Numbers chapter 8 and Numbers chapter 18 when God took the Levites from among the people of Israel and gave them as gifts to the people for service in the tabernacle. Smith says this is what is going on in the psalm. The psalmist is reflecting on God taking the Levites. You have the exodus, you have captives that are now free, and then from among the, the released captives you have you have these people taken, then given to the people of Israel for service. Numbers chapter 8, verse 6 says, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Numbers 8.18 says, And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. Numbers 18, verse 6, And behold, I have taken your brothers the Levites from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. And Peter O'Brien, reflecting on Smith's comments, says, According to Smith, Paul wants his readers to understand that throughout history, God has chosen special men as leaders of the community of believers. The grace given to fulfill these different responsibilities may vary. Verse 7, talking about Ephesians 4, 7, the apostles' exegesis of Psalm 68 then is not that of Midrash Pesher, but a remolding of the thought of Psalm 68, 18 on the basis of the scriptural commentary in Numbers 8, 6-19, through and chapter 18, verse 6, which the psalmist used. The controlling factor is that of a grammatical historical understanding of the text. Well, I happen to agree with Smith that what we have here is an example of grammatical historical use of the Old Testament by Paul, but I don't know that necessarily he had in mind Leviticus, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 8 and chapter 18, and that he had the Levites in mind. I, I can see the attractiveness of that view because when you get down, of course, to verse 11, God is giving men, God is giving servants to His church. And so that would certainly accord with what He did with the Levites. Making the situation even more difficult is that people debate about the context for Psalm 68 itself. I mean, what was the occasion for the writing of that psalm? What were the events being pictured in that psalm? There's debate about that. Charles Spurgeon, 
You have to love Spurgeon's honesty. He said the psalm, speaking of Psalm 68, he said the psalm is at once surpassingly excellent and difficult. Its darkness in some stanzas is utterly impenetrable. Well, does a German critic speak of it as a titan, very hard to master. And then he says, our slender scholarship has utterly failed us, and we've had to follow a sure guide. And he has guide capitalized, talking about the Spirit of God. We trust our thoughts may not, however, prove unprofitable. So he basically says, I'm going to do my best, and we're going to trust the Lord in this. So what am I going to do tonight? I'm not going to walk you through all the opinions. I'm just going to preach the text in a way that reflects where I've landed. This is actually point number two of one sermon. The second sermon of one sermon is what we're doing tonight. So last time we talked about the distribution of spiritual gifts to each believer, verse 7. Tonight we're talking about the explanation for spiritual gifts, verses 8 through 10. And these two verses are tied together, verse 8, by the word, therefore. But each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore... I think the sense of this would be this, accordingly, it says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Paul, alluding to Psalm 68, verse 18, showing us that what Jesus has done for us is in full accordance with the statement found in the Scriptures. It's in full accordance with what you see in Psalm 68, verse 18. So he's going to deal with that verse from Psalm 68 in a way that is both true to its original context, but also demonstrating that, that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's plans and God's activities that were on display in that original context. That is, what God was doing then has reached a climax, as it were, in what God has done with His Son. So that what we're talking about in the realm of spiritual gifts fully accords with what the psalmist said in Psalm 68, verse 18. It is analogous to what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 68, verse 18. So let's begin with Psalm 68, verse 18. What is happening in Psalm 68? You'll notice if you look at that psalm that the superscription... For that psalm attributes it to David. David is spoken of as the author. And I think the likeliest occasion for the psalm, given all the details, when you read the psalm carefully, I think the likeliest explanation for what, is, what the psalm is celebrating and commemorating is the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant from the home of Obed-Edom to the tent on Mount Zion. You can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 5, David conquers Jerusalem, conquers the Jebusites, chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant is then transported to the city of Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, where David had pitched a tent. Listen just to a portion of 2 Samuel 6, 2 Samuel 6 verse 11, and the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. 
Verse 15, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with, with the sound of the horn. Verse 17, and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So you have David having the ark transported to Mount Zion, and there's this procession, this joyful, celebratory procession that takes place as the ark is brought in. Why do I think that Psalm 68 is, is referring to that? Well, it's interesting. The very first verse of the psalm echoes Numbers 10.35 when the people of God are leaving Sinai and the ark is being transported. Numbers 10.35 says this, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Psalm 68 verse 1 begins, God shall arise, His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate Him shall flee before Him. Psalm 68 begins where Moses would begin when the Ark of the Covenant was being transported. If you look at the psalm in its entirety, it recognizes God as Israel's King. He is their provider. He is their protector. And He leads them in victory over all other kings. Psalm 68 verse 11 says, The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. The psalm takes us through the deliverance from the exodus from Egypt and through their wilderness wanderings to their homeland and God driving out their enemies all the way to the time where now the ark is, is transported up Mount Zion and Sinai is on that mountain, has been transported inside the sanctuary, so to speak. There's this military imagery throughout the psalm. Yahweh is seen as coming down and then leading His people as the victor. He is triumphant. And throughout the psalm, they celebrate. David celebrates his care, God's care, His mercy, His kindness, His love, His faithfulness. As He leads them throughout the ages, leads them throughout their history up to that point. Psalm 68, verse 4, Sing to God, sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before Him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O oh God, when You went out before Your people, when You marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. And so the Lord and His armies have now, as I said, brought Sinai to the sanctuary, the presence of God, it was manifested at Sinai, is now manifested among His people in Mount Zion so that other mountains are jealous. Other mountains are personified, specifically represented by Bashan. 
Psalm 68, verse 14, when the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred? O many-peaked mountain at the mount that God desired for His abode. Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. Bashan, why do you look with jealousy upon Mount Zion? ESV Study Bible, if you have it, has this note. A mountain, speaking of Bashan, a mountain across the Jordan to the east, here figuratively described as jealous of Mount Zion, verse 16, the place which had been chosen for the special presence of God. So the Lord has been with His people. Now He leads those whom He has delivered in His victory, they celebrate His triumph up the mountain where He will dwell among His people. Psalm 68, verse 17, the chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. And those armies, I believe, are angelic armies. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Right? The presence of God manifested at Sinai is now manifested where the ark is in the sanctuary. Verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Selah. So in context, I understand Psalm 68 to be describing this transportation of the Ark of the Covenant up Mount Zion into the tent that David had prepared. This is the celebration. This is the commemoration. But it's done in these, in these terms where God is seen as their king and He comes down and leads His people even from the exodus through the wilderness to the conquering of their enemies. And now Sinai is in the sanctuary. Those who were once captives are in the parade. Those who were once captives, the, the captives have been taken captive. So those who were once captives now share in His victory. And it's that, now, now we think about the application of Psalm 68 verse 18, it's that ascension in victory that Paul says, Psalm 68 18, fully accords with what we see in Jesus. How, what is the connection? It is Christ in triumph. It is Christ in victory. He has ascended on high. And He's taken captives with Him. How do you explain spiritual gifts given to the church? They have been given, they have been received by us because God has triumphed in His Son. Jesus is the victor. He has received the victor's spoils and He now distributes those spoils to His people. That's the picture. This is why Paul is able in his application of the psalm to move from a victor receiving gifts to a victor distributing gifts because it's one and the same. To win is to receive the spoils and then you distribute them as you see fit. So he's not doing injury at all to the original context of Psalm 68, 18 to now picture Christ giving these gifts that He has won. He's the victor. He has triumphed. He has the right to do this. William Hendrickson comments, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the apostle had every right to make this application. 
for the victor receives the spoils with a view to giving them away. The giving is implied in the receiving. When Christ ascended, He was not returning to heaven with empty hands. On the contrary, as a result of accomplished mediatorial work, He returned in triumph to heaven in the full possession of salvation for His people. These people were, so to speak, in His triumphant procession. They were captives in His train, chained, as it were, to His chariot. There was a vast host of captives. Among them was also Paul, destined along with the others to spread abroad the fragrance of the gospel. Thanks be to God. Now Christ received in order to give. He had earned in order to bestow. He received these captives in order to give them to the kingdom for kingdom work which, of course, would include not just the individual gifts given to each of us, but the gifted men given to the church, verse 11. Paul says, verse 8, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that He might fill all things. God came down at Sinai, but He came down in an even more profound way in His Son. God with us. God came down. The second person of the triune Godhead left heaven and took to Himself an additional nature, a real human nature, to be our Redeemer, our Deliverer, our Savior. Exodus 19, verse 20 says, The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord met with His people there. And here in Ephesians 4, 9, we're told that the very same one who has ascended, and of course this speaks of Jesus, is the one who descended. He came down, you see. He came down. What is meant by the lower regions of the earth? He also descended into the lower parts of the earth. I think what he's talking about is the lowliness of the incarnation. In every way that lowliness was required for Jesus to serve as our Savior, He embraced it. He embraced it. This is in contrast now to His glorification. This is in contrast to what He now possesses on the other side of the resurrection and ascension. Just as He now is above all things, so He was willing to descend to the lowest places in order to save us. John MacArthur commented, the depth of Christ's descent in incarnation is said to be into the lower parts of the earth. This reference is presented to provide a striking contrast in terms of His ascent far above all the heavens, emphasizing the extreme range of of our Lord's condescension and exaltation. To understand the phrase, the lower parts of the earth, we need only to examine its use elsewhere in Scripture. In Psalm 63, verse 9, it has to do with death being related to falling by the sword, verse 10. In Matthew 12, 40, a similar phrase, the heart of the earth, refers to the belly of a great fish where the prophet Jonah was kept. In Isaiah 44, 23, the phrase refers to the created earth 
containing mountains, forests, and trees. Psalm 139 verse 15 uses it in reference to the womb of a woman where God is forming a child. The sum of these uses indicates that the phrase relates to the created earth as a place of life and death. In the majority of the uses, it appears in contrast to the highest heavens as here and in Psalm 139 verse 8 verse 15, Isaiah 44 23, the intent of the phrase in this letter is not to point to a specific place, but to refer to the depth of the incarnation. And then MacArthur says this, and I did find this interesting. It's interesting that each of the uses of the phrase outside Ephesians can also relate to the depth of Christ's incarnation. In other words, you look for this phrase elsewhere in Scripture, and every single one can be related to Jesus in one way or another. So, for example... He was formed in the womb, Psalm 139, verse 15. He lived on the earth, Isaiah 44, verse 23. He referred to his own burial as parallel to Jonah's being in the fish, Matthew 12, verse 40. And his death is consistent with the use of the phrase in Psalm 63, verse 9, close quote. What is this descent? It is the Son of God stepping out of heaven, embracing all of the lowliness required in order to redeem us, to save us from the wrath of God. This expression, He ascended, what does it mean? Except that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth, and the, the lower parts of the earth, not a specific place, but everything involved in what Jesus experienced here, including His formation in the womb of Mary and His burial in a tomb and His death on the cross and life on this earth. Without sin, but living in the same sorts of conditions and experiencing the same sorts of weaknesses, just as if He was living our life, but without sin. What is the ascension? Well, it's obvious. It is what has taken place following the resurrection. He has now ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. He's ascended far above all the heavens to the highest of the heights, so that He might fill all things. His victory, you see, is proven by His resurrection and His ascension. And that's how we explain this distribution of gifts. Spiritual gifts are in the church because Jesus has conquered, because He is, he is the victor. God has triumphed in the ultimate sense in and through His Son. And now Jesus, as the victor, claims the spoils and He distributes the spoils among His people. Interesting, isn't it, that on the day of Pentecost, as Peter preaches about the gift of the Holy Spirit, he connects it directly to the ascension of Christ, to the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. Acts 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. For David says concerning Him, I saw the Lord always before me, for He's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption." 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now listen, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus has ascended on high. He has received what He gives from His Father. And now He pours out the Spirit of God upon His church. Peter goes on to say, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The very one who walked the dusty earth along with these people He's preaching to, Jesus of Nazareth is the one who descended from heaven and then lived and died and has been raised from the dead and has ascended into the heavens, into the highest of the heights. There He is exalted and glorified. And that's why the Spirit of God has been poured out upon the church because He now gives from the spoils that He has won. He gives gifts to His people. This is why Paul brings Psalm 68 verse 18 into the picture when he talks about the spiritual gifts that have been distributed to the Lord's people, both individual enablements for service, and gifted men were God's gift to His church as they serve the shepherd's sheep. Let me finish tonight with some lessons from his application of Psalm 68, verse 18. This is the explanation for the gifts. The distribution on the individual level, verse 7, an explanation for how that ever came to be, verses 8-10. through 10. The victory of Christ, the triumph of Christ. So what do we learn from it? First of all, Jesus is identified with Yahweh, isn't He? In Psalm 68, Yahweh is the victor. Perhaps pictured in David's activity, perhaps pictured in the ark's transport, but God is ultimately the one seen as the victor. He's the one who triumphs on behalf of His people. In Ephesians 4, Jesus is the victor. What does that say? Jesus is God. He is the second person of the triune God. Jesus is God. And this is not the only place where you'll find New Testament writers taking psalms that in their original context were referring to Yahweh and then making application to Jesus. We've said it many times before. I'll say it again. People who say there are no clear claims in the New Testament that Jesus was and is God just don't read the Bible carefully. Jesus is identified with Yahweh in our verses. Second, spiritual gifts are the result of Christ's triumph. I know it's not perhaps intuitive, but it has been sweet to my soul this week and especially today thinking about preaching this tonight. That when I see 
Not just that we are a saved people, but a people outfitted for service. When I come in contact with the people of God and I see your gifts, how God has uniquely prepared each one of you individually to serve, how, how you are now able to serve God and His church in ways that you had no capacity for before the Lord saved you. When I see new men and women, not only with a new desire to serve, but new capabilities to serve, that very reality says Jesus is alive. He has been raised from the dead. He has ascended into the heavens and He is coming again. It says that Jesus is Lord. Your gifts say Jesus is Lord. His triumph supplied your gifts. The only reason you have your gifts is because He has triumphed so that the church testifies to the victory of Christ. Your service testifies to the victory of Christ. Spiritual gifts are the result of Christ's triumph. That's the point Paul is making in our verses. Third, it's also a sweet reminder that Jesus provides for His church. Just as that psalm, Psalm 68, didn't just celebrate the ascent of the ark up Mount Zion, it celebrated the way God had taken care of them throughout their history. How He delivered them from Egypt. How He provided for them in the wilderness with abundant rain. How He led them into their land and conquered their enemies. And The ascent of the ark was just like the, the crown on top of everything God had done for them. And in the same way, when we think about spiritual gifts and the explanation for them in these verses, it reminds us He has not just saved us, He provides for us. Everything He calls us to do, He supplies for it. He doesn't call you to serve and then give you no capacity for it. He doesn't put His Word into your hands and teach you to go make use of it without supplying for you everything you need to be effective in that work, including His own personal presence in the church, in your life. Present in your life is the very one who gave the Scriptures. And therefore, He's at work strengthening you to grasp the Scriptures. And He's at work powerfully as you make use of the Scriptures. He's the one who explains the ears that are open, the hearts that are changed, the lives that are transformed. The Lord is among His people, and the Lord is at work in and through His people. One God and Father, verse 6, who is over all and through all and in all. This is what you and I experience and what the giving of gifts reminds us of. The church is taken care of by the Son of God in every way that we need. Last thought, the triumph of Christ testifies to the sovereignty of Jesus over everything. Now this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is Himself. Also He who ascended far above all the heavens so that, in order that. This is God's purpose for it all. He might fill all things. He holds the preeminent place. This is the outworking of God's sovereign plan for the ages. He reigns over everything this very moment. 
I want to talk about safety. We talked about that this morning, how we're safe in the hand of God. Your Savior rules over everything right now. Now that is one day going to, to find new expressions in the millennial kingdom, then the eternal kingdom. But our God is sovereign this very moment so that His church is safe and useful for what He's destined us to do. I'll let Harold Horner have the last word because I thought this was expressed beautifully. Listen to what he says. He says, The object of Christ's ascension was to allow Him to enter into a sovereign relationship with the whole world. And in that position, let me just stop. You might say, wait a second, Mr. Honer. He was God before the incarnation. Oh, this is true. And He was sovereign in that sense from all eternity and will always be. But now He rules and reigns as Savior, you see. As Savior. And in that position, He has the right to bestow gifts as He wills. How is the universe filled with all things? It is the benefits of the work on the cross and consequently the ministry of the church to which Christ gave gifted persons who can function in His power. In chapter 1, verse 23, Christ is filled with God's fullness and Christ fills the church with that fullness. Since the verb pleurose in the present context is active, it means that Christ is the subject filling all things with God's fullness. This also fits with chapter 1, verse 10, where Christ unites all things under His head. Notice in that context, as in the present setting, Christ is head over all the universe and embodies the fullness of the Godhead, fills the universe and is head over it. In the present context, Christ fills the universe with the message of love by the messengers on whom He has bestowed the gifts as He willed. In conclusion, this verse serves as a critical link between the preceding and succeeding verses, Christ's descent enabled Him to gain victory over Satan, sin, and death, followed by His ascent, where as conqueror, He had the right to bestow gifts to the church. Close quote. Our King is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He sits enthroned over all the universe, and He rules and reigns over it so that out of His fullness, we know that fullness, His church. We're able to experience His power, walk in His power, and serve in His power. God is at work in and through His people. These gifts are graces given for that expression. God not only gifts you, but then He empowers the use of those gifts. And in that way, His presence is known on the earth in and through His people, His church. The church is the temple of God. The presence of God is known right here in you and in every other child of God all over the globe. If you're like me, you hear these things and you look at these verses and you understand you're just scraping the surface, aren't you? There's so much more here than you and I are able to fully grasp, and yet we are meant to look at it in wonder, and with an acknowledgement of our smallness, say, who are we that we would belong to such wondrous things? That we are the ones chained to the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that we are led in His triumph 
and the spoils that He won have been distributed to us. That His inheritance is ours. Who are we to belong to such wondrous things? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You. Thank You, Lord, for the things in Your Word that are sometimes more difficult to grasp because in those things, as we dig into them, we get a sense of Your greatness, our smallness, and the wonder of Your kindness to us. Would You strengthen us in our inner man to be able to grasp more of what we just studied together? Lord, would You strengthen us to behold in what our Savior has done the beauty, the glory, the kindness of it all. But even where we are, Lord, at, at just the doorstep of understanding it, would You flood our hearts with thanksgiving, knowing that what You have done for us in salvation is infinitely greater than what we comprehend. All of eternity will reveal Your grace and kindness to us. We will be trophies of Your love. We are grateful for this tonight and we'll be grateful for the rest of our lives and the rest of eternity. And for this, to You we say thank You. For You alone explain it. Thank You for making us Yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.